Hi guys, and welcome to another edition of the Fight Side Boxing Podcast. I'm Lukash, as always. Not the heaviest week this week. Um, Ryan Garcia had his fight with um, Javier Fortuna, which wasn't much of a fight, so I'm mostly going to just talk about Garcia and how he fits and you know what his um, prospects are in, uh, at 140, since he says he's committing to that. Um, there were more fights on the card. I'll uh, briefly just mention them because um, there were three... Theoretical title eliminated, so I called them theoretical because I think they were all WBA, which means, you know, if they were IBF, you'd know they were happening, they'd be man, the winners would be mandatory and they'd be happening almost certainly next because it's a WBA, you can't be certain. But, um, I'll talk just, I didn't watch the fights myself because the fights were at four in the morning for me, three in the morning, and I didn't, I just haven't had time to catch up with five hours of boxing since then. So I, you know, I can't talk about what happened, but I'll, I'll mention them because they're fight, fighters worth having in your view. And then I'll talk about, there was a British card, which, you know, I didn't even mention last week when I was rounding up the cards, but it was, you know, kind of interesting. Um, there are two things I want to talk about from there, um, because, you know, I am a fan of, um, Hamza Shiraz as a fighter, and he's sort of making his way at middleweight now. He's, um, he used to be 154. He's making his way at middleweight. Um, so, you know, he's worth talking about. Um, he fought Francisco Torres, who was, you know, one of those wily Argentine fighters, wily South Americans, who was overhyped on the broadcast uh, because that's what they have to do, or what they're paid to do. But he was, you know, he did some things that were interesting enough to bring a few things out of Shiraz. You know, to tell us a few things about Shiraz, basically, good and bad. And then I want to talk about Nick Ball because... Um, <laughs> that fact deserves his deserves his due. He's a he's just really fun to watch. He's a um you know, his official his official height on this card was five foot five, which is what it is now on Broxwick. I don't think I believe that. I you know, I don't wanna cast you know well I say I don't wanna cast doubt on a on a guy's uh, claims. It's just that uh, for him to be five foot five he would have to be two inches shorter than his last opponent um Isaac Lau, and that just didn't seem likely. Um, he's a featherweight. He's very short for. Is he, yeah, he's a featherweight, and he's very short for it. Um, yeah, it's just um, he's just this tiny little ball of aggression, but very skilled aggression. He's very good. Um, you know, whether he's going to be world level, I don't know. But it's just fun to talk about. And uh, last time, his last fight, I talked about him a bit, but I want to talk a bit. See if I can get into. A little bit more about what how he does what he does how he uses his height his lack of height against his opponents um so i want to get into that a little bit just um because it was, it was fun um but we'll start with ryan garcia who as i say he fought having fortuna 140 pounds which he says that's where he's going to stay now which you know fair enough I have my issues with him consistently calling out tank, constantly and even now calling out tank. Now that he's moved, you know, permanently moved to 140. But as far as actually doing it goes, you know, he's he's a big he's a big kid. He can't make 135 anymore. That's how it goes. Um, as far as moving up goes, beating Javier Fortuna doesn't beat very doesn't prove very much because Fortuna was never really, you know, a 440 pounder. So he's not proving that he can handle the size. Uh, and you know he wasn't really in shape or anything, so in that sense it doesn't prove you know it doesn't prove anything about Garcia's level, but it did I think show one or two things that Fortuna 
he wasn't expected to win and I don't think he was expecting to win but he wasn't there you know he didn't come in to lose he was trying to win and he did he does enough things well enough that he you know you could still see things about where Ryan Garcia is from that fight it wasn't like a complete you know walk over Ryan Garcia walked in and smashed him and so you could see there were a few of the issues you know all of the issues that we talk about with Garcia um were still present you know he still he still um makes mistakes he still loses concentration and drops his hands after he's thrown sometimes he still does sometimes get off balance and things but um but I think it's pretty clear that he's been um working on these things with Joe Goosen in the gym that he's been I think he's been really obviously working on his footwork. His in and out footwork was much better than I think remember it being. Um his judgment of range, his uh, his commitment to using range to bait Fortuna to throw was much better than it has been. His um I think he's using he's chaining his punches together better. Now we know about Ryan Garcia's left hook and we know he's got a good right hand. Um but he's kind of always been for me about throwing these things sort of one at a time but now I mean both the final two knockdowns the one that ended the fight and the one before it um, came of him chaining a right hand and a left hook immediately together um, in a way I don't think he was doing before but um, let me roll back a bit and start off with the first few rounds the thing about Ryan Garcia is Oscar De La Hoya, um, before the fight, you know, he was doing his usual promotional guff that he's not really very good at, and he said, you know, either Garcia's going to push him, um, throw everything at him from the start, or he's going to, you know, dissect him and uh, beat him that way. And so neither thing is a thing that Garcia does. Garcia is not a full-on pressure fighter who's going to hurl everything he's got in the tank at from the beginning. And if he tried that, it would be foolish, um, which is why I also don't think it's a concern. I saw some people essentially complaining that Garcia didn't finish Fortuna earlier than he did. Um, and I don't think that's any kind of an issue because, um, yes, some fighters would have been able to open the holes in Fortuna's game and push through and finish him faster. But they're full-on pressure fighters. Garcia's a pressure fighter in the sense that he cranks up the mental pressure and he pushes forward at an opponent, at an, at an opponent but he's not throwing punches all the time. He's not a gung-ho you know, go at your opponent all the time, fighter, and he's not about corralling them into into corners where they have no escape and just throwing punches until until they give in. He's about cracking the pressure, especially mentally, until they throw something that he can work with, and then finding, you know, looking for the gaps, baiting things, looking for the gaps, and trying to land those big shots. Um, and I think he did that much better, and I think he did it steadily. Early on, if you watch the first couple of rounds. Garcia was very good at, um, you know, he was setting up his range finding, and in the first two rounds he would come in, throw throw the jab, and then leave, um, and then you know just disengage. And in the first couple of rounds, like I say, he was disengaging a long way, and he wasn't able to follow things up. He'd bait Fortuna into the shots, but he wasn't really able to punish them. And so when he did throw, Fortuna was ready to take the shots. Um, he was good, mostly, at staying safe from Fortuna's counters. But um, So, you know, he'd throw the shot when Garcia, when Fortuna wasn't ready to throw, but he was ready to defend, if you follow what I'm saying. But then later on, he 
would start staying in the in the same position, basically staying in the mid-range pocket. You know, it wasn't right in right in his face because he's not that kind of fighter. He's a mid-range fighter. His best shots come at mid-range. Um, but you know, he'd hang out in that little little pocket of space there, and he'd um, just slide back a little bit. Sometimes he wouldn't even step back. He'd just lean back, um, and then he'd throw the counters. Then he'd throw his big shots, and uh, yeah, it started getting to Fortuna. And that was what the knockdown in the fifth round. That was how it happened. Um, you know, he was literally stepping backwards um, in that in that shot in the fifth round. Oh, you know, I've skipped ahead here, but that is essentially. You know, there wasn't a lot of back and forth happenings in this in this fight. It was a steady progression from Garcia in the first round throwing jabs, throwing out right hand, leaving, or you know, and all that to Garcia being able to land that shot. So a steady progression of things rather than of you know, building on the same thing. So, um, you know, I'm not going to describe step by step that Garcia was getting a tiny bit closer every time he threw the right hand with the left hook. Um, but yeah, how the knockdown happened in the fifth round, which was really the beginning of the end, was a result, it's essentially a result of um, Garcia had taught Fortuna certain reactions. He hadn't just worked out Fortuna's timing. He had taught Fortuna to react in certain ways to certain things. And, you know, one of those things was the jab. Um, Fortuna had started to try to counter the jab directly. Like, he realised that he wasn't going to catch Fortuna, that Fortuna's range was... Um, that he wasn't going to catch Garcia, that Garcia's range was a little too good to um, to catch him countering... To counter the big shots, so he's trying to count, started trying to counter the jab, and Garcia took advantage of that. Um, if you watch the sequence just before the knockdown, um, Fortuna is starting to react in a big way to the jab. And sometimes Garcia throws a jab, and sometimes he doesn't, and he faints it, and he throws the right hand. And then the sequence that, um, that started the knockdown, uh, that led to the knockdown, um, Garcia faints a jab, doesn't throw it. Um, Fortuna reacts to the jab in a big way. And tries to counter it, but he is aware that Fortuna, that Garcia might throw a right hand after it. He's already realised that, um, so he can't. He does take that right hand, but it isn't doesn't um, it doesn't drop him on its own, and it wouldn't have dropped it on its own. But that's when Garcia starts. This is what I was talking about with Garcia putting the combinations together a little bit. I mean, it's just a you know, it's not a one-two because it's not a jab right hand, but um, it's a two-punch combo. And um, well, he followed it immediately with a left hook, which. Um, if it had just been throwing that, you know, on its own, you know, Fortuna knows he's trying to do that. But because he, you know, he taught Fortuna, he um, guided Fortuna into this, uh, I hate using the word trained, um, so I'm trying to avoid it. He, uh, But he got Fortuna reacting to things before the left hook, so that he was not thinking about the left hook, and he caught him flush with it, and... Um, was a delayed reaction and knocked him down. The delayed reaction um, combined with what happened later makes me think that there was more damage, which I don't know if happened off that punch or if that punch sort of exacerbated something, I don't know, a broken jaw or something, because um, cause that's not normally how you react to punches to the head if you're not knocked out, if you follow up saying, like, he reacted as if it had been a body shot, you know, that instant and then flash of pain and you go down. And um, the final knockout um, was... A similar sort of reaction like he he wasn't he didn't just seem to be dazed from the punch to the head there was some thing he was dealing with you know on, on top of that so i think he i think there was an injury that he got you know it wasn't a freak injury or anything the punch caused it whether it was that punch or an early one 
I don't know. But, but that's where the end started. And I think uh, another thing worth looking at and worth realising how good Garcia is getting at certain things is, on the face of it, in the sixth round, the combination that ends it is the same combination. It's a right uh, right hand, left hook. But it's different because in the first one, Garcia was pushing into Fortuna's space and baiting those reactions. In the second one, and this is where Fortuna not having given up comes into it because I saw some people say, oh, he gave up, oh, he took the knee, you know, he, he wasn't there, he, he was looking for a way out. The knockdown happened because Fortuna was still trying to chase the fight and he got baited into, you know, to essentially taking the lead and chasing a knockout by Garcia, backing off, backing off, just little little steps backwards and Fortuna came forward and he took the lead and he got countered then um, and he got walked onto a right-hand left hook combination. So... And that's when he went down and he was on his knee, but he, and he spat out his mouthpiece and he, you know, he got waved off, all of that stuff. Um, it's good, you know, it's a good performance from Garcia. Um, and the thing, yeah, it's that little thing um, with Garcia. You know, people, I think, think he's got a limited tool set and he relies too much on the left hook and on that, on the right hand, you know, on the straight right. That, that That's what he's mostly relying on. And to some extent, that's true. But um, but there, there is a thing I've talked about before with um, having small variations on the same thing can be as valuable to you as having lots of different things, but always throwing them in the same way. I don't want to shit on him too much, but um, Anthony Joshua is always my go-to example of that because, um, you know, he has little... He can vary his time and his stuff. He's not, a, you know, he's not some... Um, crude nobody but um but it was very obvious against Usyk that um Joshua has this problem with he has this really impressive technical form but he throws everything from the same place all his left hooks are the same left hooks all his right hands are the same right hand all of that kind of thing and his footwork is sort of the same too you know he's not taking different positions and um you know Garcia on the face of it maybe even looks like that but um but he is doing little different things, you know, he'll throw the same punches, the left hook, the right hand, the jab, but they're different things, they're just different in little ways, and the combination of them is different, and just little setups are different, um, and he'll, you know, he'll empty the body in the head, obviously, you know, Joshua does that too, uh, but um, he'll vary up these things in little ways, so no, he's not a complex fighter, in the sense of having a huge bunch of tools that he can pull out, He's, you know, he's not Francisco Estrada or, you know, a Chocolatito with his dizzying array of punches. He's not even, you know, comparing him to other rising fighters. He's no Boot Tennis or um, Bam Rodriguez with the depth of their games, but he does just have this little ability to change the things that he's throwing and to use that to bait his opponents into into movements that he then counters. And that ability to think about what his opponent is doing and predict it and guide it is something, you know, it's quite rare in a fighter that young. And if he's got that, then he can learn a bunch of other stuff to put around it. And yeah, he does have to, you know, I think his footwork's getting better. Um, I think his uh, head movement is certainly getting better. And I think he did forget it um, at times throughout the fight. But with Garcia, the thing is, he's so young that um, 
I think he still has time to ingrain those things into his game. Like, I think he, he lost a bit of focus and started making the same old mistakes. And of course, that's an area of concern and will be until we stop seeing those mistakes. And some, frankly, for some time afterwards, because, um, you know, Canelo is what is one of the best fighters in the world, one of the most skilled. Um, but he fixed his footwork problems quite late. And, you know, I, I was always a slight skeptic just in the speed of his footwork, but even I was convinced, you know, thought that he had sorted out the bad habits that he used to have until after the Khan fight. And then he fought Bivol and a lot of those bad habits came back. When you fix mistakes late, it's really difficult to ingrain them fully. But I think Garcia is young enough that if he's working on them continually now, I think he can still work those things out of his game. We won't know that for sure till he's proved it, but I think he's on the way. Um, and yeah, no, I just can't, you know, I just like him as a, he's an enjoyable fighter to watch. Um, I find the hate he gets really strange. Um, I mean, I don't find it strange, I understand it, but um, a lot of, you know, boxing heads seem to get annoyed that Garcia has fans who aren't boxing fans, that he has a fan base who are essentially, you know, teenage girls or, you know, girls in their 20s on Instagram. And they seem to find that personally offensive, um, which I, you know, whatever you do you I do understand why people find Ryan Garcia talking a lot and not fighting that much that uh, irritates him um, hopefully he sorted out whatever problems he had um, going on with him and he continues now to you know push on and makes his case at 140 it's going to be a little tricky finding fights for him like I say um, I don't think Tank is that interesting a fight because um even if it had happened at 135, I was always of the opinion, you know, it would have been an interesting enough fight and test for him, but um, I always tend to be the opinion. They are both guys who who are there. They're both skilled. And, you know, I shit on tag sometimes, but he clearly is skilled. Um, but they're both guys whose game is built around taking advantage of their explosiveness. Like, their game is focused on taking advantage, advantage of power and speed and explosive delivery. And Goss, um, Tank does, you know, he defends well when he's defending, but he doesn't defend well when he's attacking. And I think that would leave him open to, in a situation like that, um, I, you know, you will usually lean towards a guy who is explosive and powerful and much bigger. And he is much bigger. He's probably much more powerful just by virtue of being much bigger. And he may well be faster too. And Garcia hasn't, um, Tank hasn't faced those combinations before. And I think you just find it really hard um, to to deal with Garcia. But um, in any case, I don't think Garcia should be chatting that fight up unless and until Tank confirms that he's at 140. Like, you don't do that. You don't move up to a weight above the fighter you're calling out and then go, yeah, come up. You just, just don't do that. So I understand why that's annoying to people. Um, I would like to see him fight Gary Allen Russell. That's a much more interesting fight for me. Um, I don't think it's going to happen because, you know, promotional bullshit, but it's uh, it's an option. Tio uh, Lopez is an option. That would be a really fun one. That would really prove Garcia's credentials and, you know, see where Lopez is at um, if he moves up to 140, which, you know, I think he should. And, yeah, that would also be a fun one or two, you know, really explosive, skilled, but explosive, well, skilled and explosive fighters. Um, so, yeah, I would quite like that fight to happen too. That one is makeable because they're both with Cezone, I believe. Um, you know, one with Golden Boy, one is Matteo with Eddie Hearn. I think so. Uh, in any case, 
that is you know the fight I would like to see if it can happen this year then this year if not then early next year but uh, okay yeah that's all that there really to say about that now I need to talk about the three fights that happened that are that were WBA I believe I, think, I believe they're all WBA they're all title matters of a sort and I think none of them were RBF um, but uh, yeah I should just make basically I should just mention them because these will be guys who should be fighting for a world title in future so they're worth having an eye on one of them is Lamont Roach who you know we've seen before he previously lost a world title shot to Jamal Herring um, back in 2019 and, you know he's worked his way back and he beat Angel Rodriguez to um, yeah so he now has a title shot at um, now it's a WBA, what WBA instead of WO, and he gets another go. Um, then you have Ricardo, no, David Jimenez beat Ricardo Sandoval. Sandoval was kind of a prospect, um, probably still is, but David Jimenez, he's not a prospect because he's um, 30. Uh, I'm just clicking there, I was just checking his age. Yeah, he's 30, he's Costa Rican. Um, I think this was his first time fighting in America. Um, yep, he's, yeah, he's 11 and 0, but he's a He's 30, so he's not yet, he's not a prospect or anything. But he won basically an upset against Sandoval, who was sort of the pick here. Um, and now he gets a flyweight title shot um, in, you know, in future. This fight was apparently quite good. And apparently a little bit not con well, controversial. Apparently it's a very close fight. One of those where lots of rounds could have gone either way. So it, would, it was not wrong to give him an as the win. But Sander Park could easily have argued for one. Um, I may try to catch this back. I doubt I'm going to do an additional podcast or anything. But um, yeah, David Jimenez will probably be appearing on our screens to fight Artem Delakian. And honestly, it would be great if Jimenez won because Delakian has been holding that bait belt hostage for several years. Um, given that he's Ukrainian, and I'm not sure how quickly that will come together. But, uh, and also because Delakian has to date refused to fight outside of the Ukraine for his title, you know, we'll see. But, uh, but that, you know, Jimenez should be, should be there next. I don't know if he's good enough to win that fight, but, um, yeah, so I should probably watch this at some point. But yeah, that one there. And then the last one is that minimum weight. And that was, uh, Oscar Colazzo, who was 4 0. Colazzo is, I think, 25. Let me have a look. He is 25. He's 4 0, which is unusual, um, you know, for a fight, world title fight that early. It's not as spectacular as it would be in other divisions because minimum weight is not the deepest division in the world. But um, it, that is another one I will probably have to look up. He beat he be, uh, Victor, Vittorio, Victorio Saladar, who has been around for a while and fought for world titles um, before. I think he's always lost them. He may be a football champion. I'm not too, I need to get more familiar with the lower weights. Um, in any case, yeah. Um, Colazzo beat Salador, who is a veteran. He's only 31, but he's had 26 fights, 27 now. Um, and Colazzo is now in, in the frame for a title shot after that. But okay, I don't have anything actually to say about those fights, so I will move on to the British card. Um, which, you know, nothing hugely significant in terms of divisional relevance in terms of the title scene or anything happened. But, um, yeah, Hamza Shiraz is moving up in weight. Well, he moves up in weight. This is the second fight at the weight. You know, like I, I think I said before, it's a little bit disappointing to see him not rematch Bradley Skeet, given the way that fight ended. 
if he can't make the weight, he can't make the weight, you know, but you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, you don't have to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to. Um, what I would say is, I think we saw improvements from Shiraz because although his opponent, um, Torres, was not um, not the same sort of fighter as Bradley Skeet was, he does have some of the same, you know, odd kind of movement, a um, little bit of, um, you know, skating at range, um, trying to get Shiraz to come after him and then trying to counter and being a bit janky with his movements and a little bit odd. And Shiraz found that really difficult with um, Skeet. Um, Torres wasn't quite in the same level of jankiness, but at the same time, I did think Shiraz was better at closing that movement off at you know being a bit craftier basically he Shiraz against Skeet was being really basic with his approach until towards the end he decided to go a bit nutso and start throwing kind of really odd shots and with odd timing and that worked but it was kind of a Hail Mary and at some point you know even if it Skeet hadn't worked him out, which he may have done. It, better fighters would, you know, you can't just go from really basic game to complete fruit loop stuff. Um, especially, you know, when that stuff is just uh, just being made up on the spot. Like, you know, you can, sometimes you get away with it. Like um, Estrada did it against Strasikas um, I think, in the first in the twelfth round of the first fight. Um, you know, you can do it, but I'm not sure. Basically, Shiraz didn't have the fundamentals to carry that against a really good opponent. Um, and I think, he's, firstly, he's improving those fundamentals. But secondly, he, I think, showed a better way of approaching his opponent. Of um, Yeah, a better variation of tempo, basically. A better variation on closing that distance, on keeping safe behind the jab, and then... Know, throwing his attacks just a little bit more just more craft in general he's just improving as a fighter he is also very young he's um 23 so you know same as Ralph Garcia he's 23 if you're not familiar with Shiraz the thing about Shiraz is he's six foot three so he's not quite um Fandora size but he you know he was huge at 154 and he's still very big at middleweight um he's a big guy with a long reach and he comes in with um He's one of those guys who, again, actually, this is what partly why I'm disappointed to see him leave 154, although Fandora will almost definitely be at middleweight sometime in the near future, so they may well fight anyway. But they're both long guys who fight well behind a jab, but prefer to be inside, prefer to be in close. And um, the thing I like about Shiraz the most is, and he's now really leaning into it, um, is he's really good at using his length in close for real leverage, for real whip. He really, when he throws hooks, he really kind of, he steps in and then he really just whips across. So, you know, he's aiming through, you know, you're punching through, but rather than punching through behind the head, you're punching across the head. And he really uses his length well to get that leverage. Like, um, he's not, you know, some long, some big long guys really struggle to get the leverage when they're in close. They can't, they're, they're always trying to power the punches you know, from the centre of their mass sort of thing, and they don't have enough range to 
to get those shots off. Whereas um, Shiraz really has learned to use his length to whip the shots, to bring the shots around from the side when he's in close. He's also learned to use his range to fall with the jab. Um, he hurt he hurt Torres a couple of times. I think he knocked him down once with a jab, I think, and he hurt him a few times with the jab. And I think part of that happened just because against Skeet, he was basic. I think here, he looked basic, but the tempo, the range he was throwing the jab from was different. And when he was that long, you can vary, the, you know, what from your frame of reference isn't that big of a difference, but just a little bit of a lean forward and your opponent has to do much more work to evade something. And yeah, basically he was stepping in with the jab further than Torres expected him to and he was not really, really fucking with him by doing that. And again, with those whipped hooks that he throws, they're difficult to evade because he can adjust them pretty late and he can really whip them across really close. So stepping in so that they can behind him isn't really a defense, but he can also whip them further out. So stepping back is also not safe. So he's going to be a difficult fighter to to beat and to defend against in that sense. And he's also good at working the body. You know, he's he's got all the tools. He does have to, you know, there are things he has to learn. His defense is still quite defense is still quite leaky, which showed because after the first knockdown, um I think it was the first knockdown. Anyway, after one of the knockdowns, he got knocked um knocked down immediately after. Basically just got just got cocky, just wasn't paying attention. Um converse to Ryan Garcia and this is what I'm talking about, um he did kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm going to chase this guy down now, and immediately got knocked on his ass. Um, and after that, he kind of went, okay, chill, relax, fight your own tempo, and and you'll get him eventually. And he did. Um, which you know, it's, it's I'm talking about. This, I didn't think of this before before I started talking about um, Shiraz now, but it is an immediate lesson onto why Garcia wasn't wrong to do that way he did, because um, because Shiraz kind of did forget that for a second and immediately got punished for it you know, fight, keep to your plan, unless your opponent is really fucked up. And even then, if you're not that kind of fighter, the thing with Shiraz is he can be that kind of fighter. He likes pressure fighting. Um, I think he's being coached out of certain elements. Um, yeah, I think to know basically is um, um, Hamza Shiraz has moved to America for this camp. I believe he said in the build-up that they have met before, that he received some advice from this guy, Ricky Funes. Um, I'm just reading now. Um, apparently they've been together for a while, which I hadn't realised. But um, yeah, you can, I think you can see what they've been working on. Um, that may actually explain why he looked a bit janky against um, against Skeet, because um, if I'm reading that right, he hadn't been with Funes for very long. He'd been with Funes full-time, well, not full-time, but in the camp before Ski, but that was maybe the first or the second full camp. And, you know, if you're introducing new ideas, they may not have bedded in yet, and now they are. So that may explain it. In any case, he's, um, he, he basically moves to LA. He trains in LA for the months before each fight. So, so you know, that's dedication for a guy that young, um, you know, from to move from England to, to America to LA to train. And, yeah, I think... I think, you know, he's he's got his flaws and will he be fully world-class? I don't know. I suspect he will. You know, there are still things to work on. There are still ways and, and to to get caught out. Because he's now at middleweight um, and not uh, um, super uh, at 1.4 at super welter, 
the route to the top is less fraught, but at the top is um, Janibek Adam Kanuli, who I don't know if Shiraz can, you know, will ever be good enough to beat, but um, it's worth him going for it. And I think he will get there pretty quickly in this division because it's not deep. Um, so we'll see. Um, I like him. And then the other fight on the on the card that I want to talk about, like I say, was Nick Ball because Nick Ball is just a load of fun to watch. And I think maybe his career's turned a bit because um, he first kind of came. Well, it's the first time I noticed him, and I think it's the first time a few people noticed him was in the lockdown fight. Um, I think it was a BT Studios. Um, in yeah, in 2020, during lockdown, essentially, like I just said, and he fought Jerome Campbell, who I think was kind of a prospect coming. You know, not prospect, prospect, but uh, you know, this was an eight-round fight. Um, but I think I think Campbell. I think I remember Campbell being expected to win, and then um, got kind of beaten up. Um, you know, um, Ball won, won a bit of attention there, and he was noticed because um, because he's a very little guy. He's very small. Yeah, he, he, uh, like I say, I don't think he's five foot five. I think he's five foot two, which was I think what he was listed as before. It just makes much more sense in the size difference to his opponents. But but at the same time, when they're you know when they're small, small different when they're both small, smaller differences will look. Anyway, it's not that relevant. But he is what well, is relevant because him being so small is a big part of his fight game. Uh, yeah, anyway, he fought Jerome, Jerome Campbell in twenty twenty, and then he struggled to get fights. And I mean, it's fair to say that everyone struggled to get fights during the lockdown in times. But um, you know, the only fight he had was against um, Piotr Gudel, who um, you know, some Polish fella, who. Uh, yeah, he was ten six. Not an interesting fight in you know in any real respect. And then he got called up in April this year to fight Isaac Lowe. And I would say that in that fight he was definitely brought on. I would suggest that Lowe's team thought he was going to be you know little guy. He had has a little bit of attention, but um, but Lowe's going to be too big for him, too strong for him, and get a confident finish because Isaac Lowe is a close friend of Tyson Fury. Fighting on a Tyson Fury card had a bit of um. You know, not uh, you know, he didn't have like world level hype, but um, he had a bit of hype around him, and he had just lost in a um, to Luis Alberto Lopez in a sort of fairly high profile fight, and and I think they were trying to sort of repair his reputation with an eye catching but supposedly easy ish fight against Ball. I don't know that for sure, but you know, the opposite happened, and um, Nick Ball fucked him up, and now he's got. Um, some traction, basically, you know, he got brought straight back on, um, you know, as basically as soon as possible after a fight like that, within three months, against Nathaniel Kakalolo, a, where is he from, he's Namibian, um, a Namibian, Namibian fighter, so this is one of those where, you know, Kakalolo does not have a deep record, he's lost four times, um, he... Does, you know, he's he's basically an opponent. He loses whenever he's brought into Europe, um, fighting out outside of Namibia. But you know, he's much bigger than Ball. He was clearly brought on. You know, the reverse of what happened last time. He was clearly brought on for Ball to have a visible win, which I think is you know a good sign for his future. Uh, hopefully, he gets some proper promotion now. And. 
yeah, I like, you know, like I say, it's not that, you know, there's a, there isn't a fight where you can really talk about, um, in depth, all of that stuff, because, um, as an, as a fight, because, you know, Kekalodo was brought in, not, you know, he wasn't expected to win, and he won, you know, that, that's not what was going to happen, um, but he did put up a decent fight, um, he got knocked out in the 12th, but uh, he was getting worn down before then. He was taking a lot of heavy shots. But I just want to basically talk about how Nick Ball does what he does. Um, and, uh, you know, it's worth noting, because I talk about how I don't really believe he's 5'5", five five, but he does crouch. like He does make himself even smaller, which is an unusual thing for to do for someone who is already very small. But he crouches down, he comes in really low, and he powers his shots upwards. He really explodes upwards into his shots. And that's the kind of thing which is tricky for opponents to deal with. Because when an opponent, when the fighter is exploding into shots, traditionally, you can try to catch them on the move by, you know, sticking a hand, sticking a shot out as they move, as they explode, and they'll walk onto it. But when they're coming pretty, you know, there were a few shots in this fight, and he did it, it was also true in, against both Lowe and Campbell. He occasionally punches literally straight up. He just throws shurikens, um and... Uh, even when he's not doing that, he is snapping his punches. He's coming from a really crouched stance and the power is coming from an angle. You can't really punch downwards. So it's hard for an opponent to use that explosion against him. So that's that's one of the ways that he you know, he plays into his strengths. His strength, he's small, so he uses that as an advantage. Um, and, you know, unlike Shiraz, who really has to learn to to generate power in close, um, Ball has absolutely no trouble doing that. Uh, and again, you know, it's not just coming upwards. He will really explode into every shot. Um, he's good at hooks. He's good, you know. He has a neat right hand over the top, which for him is, you know, <laughs> I'm making big deal of his fight. It's really over the top for him. But yeah, he, um, you know, he'll, he'll, jab, he'll throw the right hand off the jab. So he'll come in. He's got a neat jab. He's got good proactive head movement. You know, he's he's got a pretty complete game. And yeah, for someone of his size... Um, coming in, he really does have to have good head movement. He gets compared to Tyson. I understand it. When you're a little guy, really exploding in the power against someone much bigger, you're going to get compared to Tyson. And uh, yeah, he he's just got a really complete package. He's um, you know he's not unhittable because he's so aggressive, but his defense is really good um, for for someone coming in like that. You know, for someone coming in with that much aggression. And uh, yeah, he closes range really well. He he varies up his timing. He varies up his jab. He's um, he will abandon the jab when an opponent's not expecting it. Like he will um, he will approach behind the jab, slide back. Uh, you know, Kekalodo would throw in a throw a jab out or or, or some other kind of counter, and um, ball would duck under it and then come in with a hard left. Like he'd basically he'd run in under Kekalodo's jab and clack uh, him with a left and. Because his positioning is good, you know, he takes positions to the outside when he's coming in under a jab. He slips it to the outside, and then because he's got the space to, he he explodes. He really does run in, but he's safe. It's one of those things, you know, I'm not going to say he's as good as Manny Pacquiao. That would be ridiculous. But it's that same principle where you can do things that would normally be unsafe if you're doing them in a position where your opponent can't really get to you. And he does that. He, he comes in outside of the jab so that, there's, you know, the jab's out, so they can't use that hand, the um, the left hand, to 
to counter him. And they can't throw the right hand at him because the left hand's in the way. And he uses that a lot. He used that really against Kakalodo a lot. He, you know, he delivers a really powerful left. You know, it's essentially running left. And he does that with, you know, ultimately with both hands, which again makes it harder to, 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 um, to predict because, you know, you think he's going to do it with the left hand and then he'll throw a jab and come around with the right hand over your jab. But then at other times, you know, because if he, if all he was doing was running in, then no matter how safely he does it, at some point he's going to, you know, the opponents are going to time in and fuck him up. But then other times he'll throw, you know, much more normal, much more orthodox shots. Um, and that was what, how the fight ended because, uh, he threw, he came in behind a jab and, um, Kakalolo threw out his own, it wasn't really a jab, it was a, you know, lead left to try to count him and, and Paul slipped it to the inside and threw a counter right um, overhand, and that really, that really, that really caused it. Well, that really caused attention. It was probably the shot that ended the fight. He then followed up with another. He they, he then did come in close, but you know, not um, not while throwing, and then threw a shot from really close in, and, and that you know. It's difficult to say which of those two shots really did the damage. And then, you know, Kakalolo, he just turned around and leaned on the ropes. Um, I'm not sure if he was... Well, he was dazed. Um, you know, I don't think he was, like, giving up. I think he didn't know where he was. He was essentially out on his feet. And the ref had to stop it, you know, with a minute and a half left in the final round. But that was just a, you know, that was just a demonstration of of the variation. Because, uh, because if you start trying to... You know, if the, if the fighter starts getting ready for shots coming around the outside, around the over the top of the jab, then they'll come. He'll come in inside. It would just be really tough for for opponents to deal with. And uh, you know, one of the reasons for that is, you know, I, I do need to make something clear because I keep talking about he explodes into every shot. He's capable of exploding into every shot in the sense that at every range he can throw a power shot. I don't mean that he throws that every shot he throws is a power shot, that would be silly and he, you know, and he avoids doing that. He does set them up with throwaway punches and all of that stuff. Basically, he's just an all-round tricky package who, he seems to have, you know, I don't think he's got, you know, the traditional backing that um, you generally, you know, need to get you to the top. Not only need, but the, you know, the, there's a sort of most traditional route for British prospects to come through. Um, Dennis McCann, who... I will talk about in a second. He's in the same division. Um, he's had that, you know, ever since he turned pro, he's been on the radar. He's been, um, he's been kind of pushed and he is good. Um, the, Nick Ball hasn't had that. He hasn't had that backing. He hasn't had that promotional push. Now, hopefully he'll get it from, uh, you know, like I say, um, he's, he's with BT. This was on BT and I suspect from the fact that they immediately put out a promotional, um, a highlight reel set. Um, with the headline this guy is the real deal which I recommend you watch if you haven't seen Nick Ball it's a good little introduction to him and yeah it looks like they they have some kind of deal with him whether it's uh, whether it's a full promotion deal with Frank Warren or something of the sort I think he's with BT for now so um, he's in a strong division at British level like uh, there's a lot of good British guys at Featherweight you've got Thomas Patrick Ward who um, you might remember from a few years ago, he um, he had he fought Jesse Hernandez over in America, and you know put in a really classy performance, a really good boxing performance. Not not a lot of power, but he's a, he's a really tidy boxer. And just then after that, nothing seemed to happen. And I suspect COVID had to do with that, and possibly you know decisions over 
America or England, I don't know. But he his career stalled a bit. But he's he's a strong boxer, and so he he he's a, he'd be a good opponent for Ball. Uh, but you've got a few people like um, Chazza Dickens, Jordan Gill, who's one of my favourite fighters, Isaac Dogbay, Dennis McCann, who I just mentioned, he fought, he was the next guy on the card. And um, he's a good fighter. He's um, He's got a bit more um, of that classic hype, like I say. And he's really good. He's got um, a strong, sharp left hand. I do, ha- I do tend to think he has a problem with throwing it from too far away. I think probably, he's only 21, I think probably he needs a little bit more time before you throw him in at this level. But he's worth mentioning and he's going to be fighting at this level pretty soon. So he's he's a conceivable opponent for Nick Ball quite soon because um, they're clearly on the same channel, the same promotional side. Um, yeah, you've got uh, Josh Warrington and Lee Wood. I think they're a bit um, above Ball's paper road right now, but you know, in future, they're both on the wrong channel. I think they're both on the zone. But uh, like Dog Bay would be an intro. That Dog Bay would be a really fun one if you, if Ball does prove to be of the world level, because they're both these little guys who really like their aggression and power and all of that stuff. Um, it is unclear if Ball is at the level of, of Dog Bay, who's fighting a world title eliminator at the weekend. Um, but uh, but yeah, I like that, you know, basically there is a lot of potential options. Whether all of them are viable options, I don't know. But there's a lot going for football in this division and yeah it's just a it's just a good good one to watch and i recommend catching up at least the highlight package of this fight but like i said dennis mccann you know he's worth catching up on i'm not going to dig into this fight but um but he is one of the more pushed and backed and hyped british prospects um and he also he really commits to the dennis the menace color scheme um for those who are for those Americans who are unaware, our Dennis and Menace is different to your Dennis Menace. He's a lot more of a complete dickhead. Um, but his kind of scheme is, you know, red and black. And uh, and Dennis McCann has just, every fight he's been in, he's committed to the red and black color scheme. And he's just really leaning into Dennis and Menace nickname, which just amuses me on uh, more than it probably should. But in any case, yeah, it's a, it's a good division. And, and uh, you know, the, there's a bunch of upcoming guys as well, two of whom fought on this card. So that's all there is to say, really. Um, next week, as I say, there's Doc, um, I was like, Doc Bay is fighting. He's fighting Joe Gonzalez for a final eliminator at the title, the WBO title, which is currently held by his old foe. You know, he got beaten up twice by Emmanuel Navarrete at, uh, at 1-2-2, and now he's potentially going to face him if he wins on Saturday and Navarrete wins his fight later in August. They would then be um, mandatory to face off again which I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if Doug Bay has improved enough for that, but, you know, worth a go, and he will want that fight very badly. But in any case, he's facing Joe Quintana's, which is himself a good fight. It's not a super, you know, there's not a lot going on other than that. I'll have a look. Um, I'm, you know, I'll write a preview of Doug Bay versus Girl Gonzalez. Um I'm not sure what else there is, but um, I'll see what there is, and if there's anything worth noting, I will do a preview this week because well because I will because it's not you know it won't take me huge amounts of time so I'll put it out even though it will be my birthday and you know other than that um, follow me follow our patron um, you know so for exclusive pieces boxing and other stuff you know we, we focus a lot on MMA so if that's your, your bag follow us there follow me on Twitter at Crafty Boxing follow the fight site at the fight site and uh, you know just check the fight site thefightsite.com 
and you know, see you next week.